Okay, y'all, turn to Genesis chapter 6. We're going to, Holly's the reader today, and she's already complaining at how long it is. Can you believe that? Our staff is complaining to me about how long this passage is. All right, Genesis 6, 1 through 7, what did that tell us? It told us the why of the flood, right? Why was there a flood? Because sin decreates the world, right? Sin takes the world back to the watery chaos in Genesis 1-2 before creation even began. So Paul was here. He'd say, of course there's a flood because the wages of sin is death. So sin cannot be rehabilitated. It can't be counseled. It can't be uh, fixed. It can't be improved. Sin can only be destroyed. Now here in Genesis 6-9 through 8-12, we're told why God saves the world. Not why he sent a flood, but why he saves the world. And the question is, why does, why does he want us to know that? Why do you and I this morning need to know why he saved the world? What's this text supposed to do to us? How's it supposed to heal you? How's it supposed to reach you? How's it supposed to renew you? What's the power... <laughs> What's the power in this text? Why do I need to hear it? Why do you need to hear it? Why are we here this morning? Have you ever seen a baby monkey with its mother? You know, on all the BBC's Animal Planet or This Great Earth or whatever that thing is called. It's in its second one. Have you ever seen those? Have you seen it? The, the mama monkey is going everywhere. And have you ever seen the little baby? Oh my word. He is clinging on for dear life. Right? Mama's jumping. Mama's swinging. Mama's eating. And he's just, woo, woo. You know, clinging with all his might, trying to avoid falling. You ever seen a kitten with its mother? It's being carried in its mother's mouth from place to place. Some of you this morning, some of us this morning are exhausted from clinging to God with all our You're exhausted from clinging to that relationship with all your might. You're exhausted from clinging to money, clinging to being liked, clinging to being important, clinging to being a good Christian with all your might. Some of us, some of us need to be at rest from all our clinging. Welcome to why God saved the world. Please stand for the hearing of God's word. This way might be just to follow along on the screen. So, um, these are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God, and Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence. And God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, 
for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. And God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. Make yourself an ark of gopher wood. Make rooms in the ark and cover it inside and out with pitch. For behold, I will bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh, which is the breath of life under heaven. Everything that is on the earth shall die. But I will establish my covenant with you, and you shall come into the ark, you, your sons, your wife, and your sons' wives with you. In the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month, on the 17th day of the month, on that day, all the fountains of the great deep burst forth, and the windows of the heavens were opened, and rain fell upon the earth 40 days and 40 nights. On the very same day, Noah and his sons, Shem and Ham and Japheth, and Noah's wife, and the three wives of his sons with them entered the ark, and they and every beast according to its kind, and all the livestock according to their kinds, and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth according to its kind, and every bird according to its kind, every winged creature. They went into the ark with Noah, two and two of all flesh in which there was the breath of life. And those that entered, male and female of all flesh, went in as God had commanded him. And the Lord shut him in. He blotted out every living thing that was on the face of the ground, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens. They were blotted out from the earth. Only Noah was left and those who were with him in the ark. And the waters prevailed on the earth 150 days. But God remembered Noah and the beasts of all the livestock that were with him in the ark. And God made a wind blow over the earth, and the waters subsided. The fountains of the deep and the windows of the heaven were closed. The rain from the heavens was restrained, and the waters receded from the earth continually. At the end of 150 days, the waters had abated, and in the seventh month, on the seventeenth day of the month, the ark came to rest on the mountain of Ararat, and the waters continued to abate until the tenth month. In the tenth month, on the first day of the month, the tops of the mountains were seen. At the end of 40 days, Noah opened the window of the ark that he had made and sent forth a raven. It went to and fro until the waters were dried up from the earth. Then he sent forth a dove from him to see if the waters had subsided from the face of the ground. But the dove found no place to set her foot, and she returned to him to the ark, for the waters were still on the face of the whole earth. So he put out his hand and took her and brought her into the ark with him. He waited another seven days, and again he sent forth the dove out of the ark. And the dove came back to him in the evening, and behold, in her mouth was a freshly plucked olive leaf. So Noah knew that the waters had subsided from the earth. Then he waited another seven days and sent forth the dove, and she did not return to him anymore. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. So Lord, we ask that you would fill us with your spirit, fill us with joy and peace that we may abound in hope by the power of your spirit through this text. And we ask this in your name. Amen. Okay, so Noah is portrayed as a man at rest from his clinging. Do you see that? Look in verse, uh, where is it? Verse 9. He's a righteous man. So in verse 9, Noah is contrasted with the wicked in 6, 1 through 7. Who are the wicked? Do you remember? The infinite sons of God and the Nephilim and every human being that lived on the planet. The wicked lived in a world of control, a world of clinging, hanging on for dear life. They built their identities 
apart from God. They sought to be more than themselves. They sought a God complex. I will be like God. Way back in the Genesis 3, the, the initial temptation was to be more than yourself, as if yourself wasn't enough, that you needed to be more. You needed to be like God. Well, that's what the world was like. However, Noah lives in a world of faith, a world of being carried by God, not clinging, but being carried. That's why he's called a righteous man. It literally means a man who is in a right relationship with God. This is the first time a righteous man is mentioned in the Bible. In other words, Noah exchanged a God complex. I will be like God for a grace complex. I need God. William McDavid and Eden afterwards write, Thus, one way to interpret the flood is as a judgment on humanity's pretensions to be gods. With the part divine Nephilim destroyed, while the all-too-human Noah is spared. Noah is at rest from his clinging. Later in the flood, we see what change this makes, what difference this makes in his life. We see that when he's at rest, he actually becomes something else, powerful, gripping. In chapter 7 through 8, the whole world is in the ark. Can you see that? This is an amazing picture. The safe place between the waters above and the waters below is gone. The whole world is a watery chaos. The whole world has gone back to Genesis 1-2. And there's an ark that's floating in the midst of a watery chaos and a watery grave. We're told the water was so great, the waters exceeded the tallest mountains on earth by 23 feet. 29,017 feet is Mount Everest, so add 23 feet to that. The text is saying the waters prevailed and prevailed and prevailed and prevailed over all the earth. Statistics reveal that the world's number one fear of death, do you know what your and my, the world over, our number one dread my kids tell me this all the time, especially Bryn, is drowning to death. Look at Genesis 7.23. It reads, only Noah was left and those who were with him in the ark. The world has reverted back to Genesis 1.2, the way it was before creation. So when we zero in at chapter 8, which is what we're doing right now, it has been almost a year that they've been in the ark. The waters have ceased. The ark is actually sitting on a mountain. They can't see the mountain. The bottom of it is stuck on a mountain. So at this time, you can imagine the desire to get off the ark. Can you imagine how great the desire is to get off the ark at this time? All time high. And so Noah sends out the dove to search the dry land, but the whole interaction of Noah and the dove is a whole scene of a double entendre, which means it's a double-meaning reality. It has a meaning up here and a meaning here. Both are true, but the deeper one is what's intended. Listen to how the text goes. The first is literal. Verse 9, you got it. But the dove found no resting place. The second meaning is embedded in Noah's name. You know what his name means? Resting place. Now watch as you put it all together. As one scholar did, he said... But the dove found no Noah, no resting place. And she returned to the Noah, the resting place. She knew. Now watch how tender verse 9 captures this. 
So he put out his hand and took her and brought her into the ark with him. When we are at rest from clinging, we become a place of rest for others. We become Noah. We become humane. We become a human being. We become ourselves. We become loving. We become self-forgetful. When you're at rest from clinging, you finally become yourself, a place of rest for others. There's one more thing we need to look at. Notice that being at rest from clinging and a place for rest for others do not depend on a flood-free life. Everything about Noah's world is screaming, it's out of control. (laughs) Your life is out of control. You're out of control. The world is out of control. Everything's out of control. God is out of control. There's no safe place anywhere. Water's above, water's below. There's no division. They're all mixed up. There's bodies bloated, floating everywhere. There's carcasses everywhere. Can you imagine what it's like outside the ark? And imagine what it's like inside the ark. Can you imagine Can you imagine the cramped spaces? Can you imagine the boredom? Can you imagine just the incredible hygiene problem? Can you imagine having to be with Uncle Fred the whole time? I mean, can you imagine outside the ark, inside the ark, everything about this text is screaming, Noah, do something. Noah, take control. Noah, cling to that relationship. Noah, cling to your career. Cling to your personal comfort and safety. Cling to your loss. Look at all that you've lost. Cling to your worry. Cling to your anxiety. Cling to your depression. Cling to that that relationship. Cling. Cling. Cling, Noah. Now I want you to look at verse 8 of chapter 6. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Do you see what's happening? Verse 8 happens before the flood. In other words, you know what this means? Is that even when you're under the favor of God, life can be absolutely horrible and out of control. So Noah is at rest from his clinging and is a place of rest for others amidst the flood, not apart from it. So why does God want us to know why he saved the world? What difference does it make in our life? It makes this difference because he's giving us rest from all our clinging. And when that happens, you become a resting place for others. And all of this happens not in the absence of a flood, but in the presence of a flood. So the only question left is, why does God save the world? Because the secret, the power of this passage is in the answer to why he does it. Because why he does it puts you at rest from clinging, makes you a resting place for others, all the while the flood's going on, not in the absence of it. So let's look at this. I want you to look at Genesis 6.18. There's another first here. This is the first time covenant's going to be used. 6.18. 
God says to Noah, amidst the threat of the flood, but I will establish my covenant with you, and you shall come into the ark, you, your sons, your wife, and your sons' wives with you. This is the first time it's mentioned. Now later, here's what a covenant means. It means a binding relationship, a legal relationship. It's, it's two parties, individuals. Later we'll learn in ancient near history that it's two parties, individuals, groups, or nations, that they bind themselves in a legal relationship. So it's like two people come together and they tie cords around each other saying, I will keep up my part, you keep up your part. And by you doing your part and me doing my part, we form this relationship, this bond by which we both succeed and we both are protected and we both are safe in a chaotic world. You do your part, I do my part. Here's what's shocking. God is the only one making this covenant. God is the only one saying, I'm going to do it all. I'm going to work. I'm going to perform. I'm going to achieve. I'm going to do it. And Noah, you do nothing. You bring nothing to this covenant relationship but your sin and your resistance. We are looking what Peter, this is absolutely breathtaking because in Peter, you know how he describes what's happening here, this kind of setup? He says that the angels in heaven are overlooking the battlements of heaven and gazing down on earth in absolute wonder at what we're seeing here, an absolute wonder at a one-way love from God, a one-way grace from God, that this is a covenant and a love that goes one way. And one way only, this is a grace and a mercy and a compassion that goes one way and one way other. And it says the angels in heaven look at this and they long for it. They don't even comprehend it. They have not seen it before. It's new in the cosmos. It's new in the universe. It's perplexing. It's confounding. It's, it's unexpected. It's, it's so beautiful. You can't take your eyes off of it. God is saying to Noah, this is why I saved the world. And he's saying to all the sons and daughters of Noah down through the ages, I know you. I love you. I will save you. I am with you, period. Not even a flood can separate you. This is why the camera, did you notice, clicks to slow motion on the day of the flood? You know, we're doing all this pregame hype before the flood and after the flood, but when we get to the actual day of the flood, everything slows down to a crawl. Did you see that? I mean, the text is screaming. Do you see it? Do you feel it? The text, I mean, the day, the day is incredibly detailed. I mean, listen to this. The 600th year of Noah's life in the 12th month and the 17th day of the month. What is that? And then you get to the water sources. Look how they're overcommunicated. You got fountains. You got great deep. You got the windows of heaven. You got rain. All descriptions of water bursting forth, opening, falling, And then there's the climax of it all when you get to the procession of those that are heading into the ark. It slows down to like minimal movement. 
In fact, one scholar puts it this way, with great detail, the procession of those entering the ark passes by the impatient eyes of the modern reader. You and I are reading all this and we're saying, okay, already, okay, get on with it. Get to the flood. Let's look at the flood. But the text slows down very intentionally. The text slows down very specifically. The text grinds to a halt here, not at the flood. The text is saying, do you see it? Do you feel it? God loves each and every creature and each and every human being, and he knows them, and he loves them, and he is caring for them, and he is literally walking them into the ark, and that he is near them, and he is saying, I will save you. Not even the flood can separate you from me. It's a one-way love. It's a one-way grace. And only a one-way love, only a one-way grace can put your heart at rest from all its clinging. The moment you and I as Christians, the moment you and I think it is a two-way relationship or it's, it's God does his part and I've got to maintain, I've got to clean with all my might and hang on to God. I've got to make this Christian life work. I've got to do this or not do this in order to God to love me or to stay near me or even to bless me. The moment that happens, you start clinging. Only when the reality of a one-way love comes crashing into our life do our hearts finally rest for the first time. And so many of us this morning, myself included, especially, you know, just in seasons, you get in seasons where you just kind of wake up that you've been clinging to things, clinging to your effort, clinging to your sincerity, clinging into your trying to be holy, clinging into trying to do this and trying to avoid that. And the answer is, the only thing that can put you and I at rest is the one-way love of God, why God saved the world, and why God saves the world to this day, the only answer is in God, not in you and me, not in what we do or don't do, a one-way love. The moment you say something like this to your child, or the moment you say something like this to your romantic whatever, you're trying to woo this girl. And she says, the moment my wife says, honey, why do you love me? And I say, honey, because you're such a great cook. Honey, because you're, you just got the best personality in the world. Honey, because you're breathtakingly beautiful. The moment I say because and fill in the blank, I killed it. I killed it. It's not a one-way love. It's not a one-way grace. It's now dependent upon something in her, and when it goes, how secure will she be? That's why the Bible says, listen, why does God save us? Why does he do this? What is he about? Is it something to me? Have I done something? Can I do something? And he says, no, I love you because I love you, because I love first, and I love second. And I love third and fourth and fifth and sixth. I love 
I bind myself to you. During World War II, there was a Jewish family named the Rosenberg family. They were exiled to a Nazi death camp. At this death camp, prisoners were free to stay alive, to not be gassed, as long as they could work. In the Rosenberg family, though, there was a young boy, and he was partially disabled from birth, and he could not carry a full workload. So at the end of each workday, the anxious family would rush back to the barracks, the son, even the younger son, the sister, and mom and dad to take a head count and to make sure everyone was safe because they were divided up in their work responsibilities. They didn't work together. Well, one evening, the father rushes back and he cannot find his little boy. He looks everywhere for him, but he does find his oldest son, finds him in the corner weeping. And he says to him, where is he? Dad, they took him. His father's worst nightmare comes true, right? As he's wiping his eyes, he looks around and he just says, son, where's your mama? He says, dad. When they came to take him, he was screaming and clinging to her. And mom said, don't cry. I'll go with you and hold you the whole way. And she did. Do you know in this six, seven, and eight that with Noah, with him, with you, when God is addressing Noah, is mentioned nine times. It is absolutely the centerpiece of the whole story. In other words, it's mentioned nine times in Noah, the family of Noah, and not just the family of Noah, the whole world is saved. The whole world is at rest because they were with Noah. Because they were with the only righteous man on the planet. Being with him changed everything. Jesus says, I know you, I love you, I save you, I am with you, period. I carry you. I hold you to the end and back, period. Let him put you at rest from all your clinging. And once you're at rest, become a resting place for others who desperately need it too. Amen.